Welcome to episode 91 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? You know, Jesse, every time you are about to say this is episode XX of the Reformed Brotherhood, you get this look on your face and your like head tilts down and it's like your it's like your introductory pose. I can always tell when you're about to get going because you take the same stance. That is my style. It's like it getting is. ready in football, like the three point stance. We should uh we should do a video recording sometime so we can see it so I can show our listeners. Just give everybody a complete behind the curtain look at what kind yes. of ridiculousness goes on visually when we record yeah we don't really have a curtain so much as we do just the i don't know fog of war maybe fog of war i thought you were gonna go holy of holy style on that no no i heard an interesting (laughs) sermon this morning about the holy of holies which was pretty good but really maybe that's why i didn't go that direction because i was like particularly like sensitive of not like minimizing that because i just had a good sermon on it I feel like you just holy of holies juked me. I didn't. That was unintentional. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you is actually what's going on. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad that's clear now. Yeah. So uh, why don't we get into some affirmations and denials? Yeah, we need some affirmations and denials. We haven't denied or affirmed anything in quite some time. It's true. It's true. We've been very neutral. Yeah, we've been very Switzerland. So how will you go first? Let's start with denials. Let's denials. get the bad news out of the way first. I'm switching so, it up on you. I am denying the end of vacation. So as uh, you know, I've been on vacation all week and I have to go back to work tomorrow. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, it's kind of that like bittersweet feeling. It's just like, I'm excited to get back to work. I'm glad to be like productive again, but it's just like, I have to get up tomorrow morning. I have like deadlines and tasks to do. And I've pretty much been able to like do whatever I wanted all week. It's been really nice. Yeah, there's like an internal groaning that happens, isn't there, at that time when everything's winding down? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just it just points to like the toil of labor that like when we when we do get something that looks kind of like a respite from labor, even though our vacations really aren't even that it's at the end of it, you're like, Ugh. but that just points to the fact that like our labor is not really satisfying. Otherwise, we wouldn't we wouldn't look forward to a vacation as much as we do just to be theological. Yeah, the struggle is real. I totally down with that. Again, not to pull in too much theology so early on, I thought you were going to go into eschatological references when you start talking about that. Yeah, it could go either way. I mean, it's all it's all systematically connected, as we love to say. <laughs> so, what about well you? What are you denying this week? So, let me take a second and just complain about a blessing, like a spoiled person. So, we had this issue this week where I noticed that one of the rear lights on my vehicle was not working. It's always about my vehicle for some reason. And then my wife pulled in from going grocery shopping and basically the whole light fixture on the back left side was just hanging off the vehicle. What? And is this on your, some, your black car? Yeah, on the black car. So on oh, the, it's a Sonata. So for some reason, somehow the light broke from the inside. Huh? So like all of the components, like these little plastic brackets that hold it into place, somehow those broke on the inside and the light just kind of like fell out. So nobody hit it. 
there's no damage done on the outside. I don't know how this happens. All I can think of is like maybe my wife kidnapped somebody and then that person's trying to escape from the trunk. They kicked out the light. I have no idea, but it's a total mystery and I have no idea how it broke. Typical Jen. Yeah. So I'm just denying weird, strange car breakage. I'm going to go ahead and call this one Revenge of the Whistle Pigs. <laughs> They've decided they're back and they're angry. And they're that, angry and they're going after your car in a totally different way. Yeah, that totally could. By the way, that sounded like an epic movie plot, the way you just described that. That's actually the next Star Wars movie. It's just Whistle Pigs. Can yeah, we make an Revenge argument of the Whistle that, Pigs? What are those things, Ewoks? Can we just make an argument that they're basically giant Whistle Pigs? Sure. Uh, who eat stormtroopers? They're like vicious, angry cannibals. Wait, do they eat stormtroopers? See, nobody talks about this, but they were going to cook and eat Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. Oh, that's right. And I then we don't talk about at the that. end, there's like, like they're using stormtrooper helmets as like drums, but where are the stormtroopers in their bellies? <laughs> yeah. Next time you guys record Fast God stuff, you get get Conrad on this, and it will that'll be your episode. Wow, that just totally changed everything for me right there. I'm not going to yeah, lie to you. took a dark turn. Yeah, so let's turn this thing back around. What good thing are you affirming this week? So to get back to our roots a little bit in more than one way, I'm ref- I am reforming. I'm affirming a book called Reformation Worship, which is a collection of edited volumes by Jonathan Gibson and Mark Ernge. Ernge, I think is how you say it. And... Um, you know, it's it's a giant tome. It's like 800 pages long, um, but it's it's basically just like a historical exploration of liturgy and and worship during the Reformation. So I haven't gotten into a lot of the historical stuff yet. I'm only one chapter into it, but so far it's it's just been amazing, and I'm really excited to kind of learn about the different liturgies. I think one of the things we miss um, when we talk about the Reformation is how central reforming worship was to um, to the insights of the Reformation. So something as little, one of the, the points they make, which I thought was really interesting, something as little as Thomas Cranmer in his revision of the Book of Common Prayer right. saying um, the, you know, something, 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 and then saying commonly called the Mass even something as little as that was a, like a radical change and radically changed the way that people thought about what was going on in the Lord's Supper because it was no longer the Mass. It was just commonly called the Mass. Um, so so it, the book goes through those kinds of like subtle changes and shows the development of liturgy through the Reformation and how it um, impacted the way that people think, right? There's this old church principle uh, that's basically the way people pray or the way people worship is the way they believe. So the reformers understood that they had to not just teach theologically, they had not just preach, but they had to change the way people worshiped in order to bring about the theological and practical changes in the church that they wanted to bring about. So it's, it's just a great book. It's expensive, but it's worth every penny. Uh, It's called Reformation Worship. Right on. I want that book so badly. I'll bring it to the beach in a couple weeks here. You can take a look. Yeah. Now that's some beach reading right there. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's we're bringing, like, we're bringing book club to the beach, to a new beach that we've never been to before. Oh, so I, I love some book club. I do. And that's like a book that's kind of equal parts exposition and reference, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's got some essays that are kind of um, 
argumentative in in that they forward an argument about what worship is. So the first chapter is kind of like an overview of the the reformed perspective on what worship is. Um, And then um, there are chapters that basically are just almost uh, exclusively descriptive in terms of like describing an order of worship from Geneva under Calvin or from um, Wittenberg under under Luther or something like that. So it's 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 a little bit of everything. Um, it's really well put together. Um, I, I just can't recommend it enough. It's it's been really great. It's by a, a publishing house called New Growth Press, which I've never even heard of, but it it's um it's just really good. Well, speaking of publishing houses, there's something I also want to recommend as part of an affirmation this week, and that's every year the Banner of Truth Trust, which is a publishing house for all kinds of good reformed and Puritan literature has a minister's conference, and that just took place. But one of the things they've done over the past several years that I think is fantastic is they've allowed all of the sessions to be streamed. So something like 11 sessions each year from all these different great preachers. And those are now available via YouTube. You can easily find it by way of search. But this year was particularly good. I got to watch some of them in real time, actually. But Alistair Begg was there, Al Mohler, David Strain. Even if you're not a pastor, which presumably most people listening are not pastors. True. This is, there's so much good material here. There's so much encouragement and really strong challenges about the Christian faith and about Reformed theology that they're all worth listening to. And maybe even particularly because it'll help you appreciate your pastor a little bit more. So I would encourage everybody, when you got a little bit of free time, go search for the 2018 Minister's Conference from Banner of Truth, and you'll find all these 11 sessions out there the one from Alistair, because I'm I will fanboy Alistair. He is the man. His message, his two messages are particularly good. And I left really pumped up, feeling very encouraged and very challenged. So go find those online. You will not be disappointed. Excellent. Was that your affirmation or is that a bonus shot? No, that's just straight one hundred percent affirmation. I'm just affirming all that right. the banner of truth is putting out all these great resources for anybody to go find. Like what normally would only be available to pastors. And only in person. I love that they're making available to anybody who has a couple minutes to go find them online. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I will um, kind of piggyback on that is, you know, more churches need to do more, particularly small churches need to do more to encourage and enable their pastors to attend conferences like this. Um, a book budget's great. It's necessary for them to have resources and to purchase books for their library, for their study. But um, I know, you know, dad went to the conference and I know that he comes back from that conference feeling refreshed and encouraged in a way that um, I don't see him seeing the rest of the year. Um, you know, ministry is hard work and as great as it is to open a new book, it's much more beneficial in most cases to your pastor for him to be able to go and and gather with other pastors and interact with them um, and not feel like he's kind of on the clock during that time. Right. So if, you, if you're in any area of influence in your church and you can sort of try to encourage the the leadership team to build in like a budget to help him fund him for that make sure he has enough vacation time or time away from um, the church to be able to attend conferences like that and not be sacrificing um, other personal vacation time during the year Uh, it's really really key and like i said especially in small church ministry which is kind of where most churches are heading just because of the state of our our world um, there's not as much opportunity for pastors to gather together as there used to be even geographically so these kind of conferences are really great times of refreshment and encouragement for them. 
Yeah, so I guess we'll just we can wrap that up into go love your pastor a little bit. Exactly. Start this conversation, encourage them to be a part of this, and anything you can do to help that out. I think from a pastor's son to everybody else, that would be fantastic because my father was has attended the past couple of years, and when I get to see, especially when I'm watching it, it streamed live, and I know that he's there listening to it, and there are other pastors that are really just gleaning so much from what's being spoken and from the fellowship that's happening together, it makes me so happy. I've discovered over the past yeah. couple of years. I just feel great knowing that my father and his colleagues are being encouraged because ministry is difficult and it is very challenging. So there's just so much that can be said for being a part of that particular event and others like it, but go, go find it online and even share it with your pastor. Yeah, absolutely. So Jesse, what are we talking about tonight? So we're getting into a little bit about justification and acceptance before God today because we thought this would be a good way. We kind of started a couple weeks ago, I guess, speaking a little bit about what it means to be adopted through Christ. And the next logical way of kind of continuing our thought pattern that was speaking about justification and then subsequently sanctification. So here we are talking about acceptance before God. And I think it sounds like we're going to talk about that in light of both the Heidelberg and the Westminster, kind of using those as a foil for defining and kind of talking about how it works out in our lives. So where do you want to start with this? Because this is a big one. Yeah. So um, if you didn't listen to last week's episode on the Question Cast Volume 5, um, you should go back and uh, look for the question about John Piper, um, because uh, we probably are not going to... Uh, speak on that much uh, during this, even though it's sort of central, a central controversy that's going on right now. Um, but it's, it's an important thing to talk about. So go back and listen to that. I don't, at this point, I don't think we have much more to add to what we've already said on the subject. Um, but this, this sort of understanding of what justification is for the reformed um, is central to, to that dialogue that's going on. So we're going to focus kind of on the, what is justification? How are we justified? Um, not so much on the, what are the current controversies? Cause as central as justification is, and as much as the ground was tilled over and, and, you know, planted and justification flowered in the reformation, there are still all sorts of controversies going on in the modern reformed context. So we also have episodes on the Lordship controversy, which was related to justification. We have episodes on new perspective on Paul and federal vision and all of that is, is, um, is surrounding that same kind of question, but we're going to focus more on what is the actual reform position rather than trying to kind of chase down all of the controversies on this episode. Right. Cause we haven't really had a conversation about justification proper in the real, real, real quote unquote historical context. Right. So I think this is a good idea to kind of talk through what it means, what it is and how it comes about. Yeah. So why don't we just start with um, question 70 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. It says, what is justification? And the answer is justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all of their sins, accepts and accounts them, accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. So this, this definition is, um, you know, I've said before that all, all of the confessions during the Reformation period are important historically, and they're all saying basically the same things with a little development here and there. But the Westminster standards really are, in, in a lot of ways, 
the most mature um, statement of Reformation theology, of Reformed uh, Calvinist Reformation theology that we have. And so um, this is really, uh, I think, a, a, a brilliant definition of justification. So just to break it down a little bit, the first uh, clause, justification is an act of God's free grace. So that emphasizes that it happens at a point in time. It's not a process. Um, and, and in that act, in that point in time, he pardons their sins and he accepts and counts their persons as righteous. So that's, you know, when you look at um, lots of different definitions, you know, the kind of classic one to remember is, is it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's kind of a handy mnemonic, but it's not really a fully orbed definition of justification. There's more to it than that. Right. I mean, what I like about the question, especially the way it starts, is it does force us a bit to zoom out on this particular subject. Because if you are a Sunday school grad, this is the kind of answer that usually comes really freely. But I've found, at least in my own life, that it can become more fact, just kind of plainly stated reality versus really a heart-centered truth. And with all the attendant emotions, I think, should come with it. So the subject of justification, I think, should be concerned first or understood best by answering the question, how can man be just with God? Or maybe said differently, how can man be made right with this holy, holy one who is the sovereign of the universe? And the answer given to that question really decides the character of all of our religion. You know, of course, right. Luther was big in saying that basically everything hung on justification. And if practically adopted, it determines our future destiny. So we've said a lot of times, if you get one piece of theology wrong, it's particularly bad. In this case, if you, if you get it wrong, you get the wrong answer to, well, this is how I'm made just before God and can have a relationship with him, then really nothing else matters because right. you're, you're going to be so far off and perhaps really surprised when you stand before God. So since we're not judged by proxy, every man must answer for himself and must be satisfied for himself what the Bible teaches on this subject. So this is, again, a good reason why the creeds are really helpful because yeah. they can give us a great place to start. So really have to answer this question well. And I like that it forces us to pull way back and not just say, well, give me the pat answer. But it really helps us to kind of delineate or give like a proper taxonomy of what justification is. Yeah, and I think one thing that really bears saying, right, you you kind of alluded to it. Luther said that justification by faith alone is the article by which the church falls or or rises, stands or falls. Um, and Calvin said that justification by faith alone is the hinge on which all of Christianity turns. And, you know, it's really interesting because if you were to ask um, sort of the average Reformed uh and or evangelical person, what what doctrines in the Bible classify you as either a Christian or not a Christian? And how many of them are there? I right. I think that the average Reformed Christian or the average evangelical would um, have far too long of a list. Right, right? I there, agree. There's, there's really only a handful, maybe three or four, doctrines that are explicitly stated in the New Testament to that would exclude you from the faith. Right. John says that if a person uh, does not have a proper Christology, he was arguing against docetism, but I, you know, that would extend to other Christological er errors. If you don't have a proper Christology, you don't have the son and therefore you don't have the father and therefore you don't have salvation. The only other one that I can think of off the top of my head is the Judaizing heresy that Paul is battling in the, in Galatians and in parts of Romans, right? So justification and the, the nature and identity of God particularly the nature and identity of Christ, 
those are the only two that I can think of off the top of my head that are explicitly stated to put you entirely outside of the faith. Um, right. You can make an argument in Jude that there's a sort of form of antinomianism that would also do that. But justification really is one of the very few doctrines that the New Testament explicitly states will will put you outside of the faith. And that, that I think, is something that's really surprising to a lot of people um, because— we tend to think that the the boundaries of Christianity, what what Christianity is, is relatively narrow. But in reality, you know, there there's a right and there's a wrong. So I'm I'm not trying to go for some sort of like internal pluralism within Christianity. There's a right and there's a wrong, um, and most things are pretty clear, I think, about what's right and what's wrong. But the range of things that you can be wrong about and still be within the boundaries of Christianity is extremely small. Um, and justification is one of them. So I think it's important and it, it, it bears us doing a little bit more digging all of us to understanding exactly what this is. Yeah, I like the way you said that, because I think sometimes with justification, we think we know it. We just run really too far ahead of ourselves. So we get to, yes, we're forgiven and we're just made just as if I'd had never sinned. But I don't think we spend enough time thinking about the prerequisites for why it was necessary, why it even has a place in theology. And one of the primary doctrines of the entire Bible, which is everywhere either asserted or assumed, is that we're under the law of God. And that's right. true for all classes of men, whether they've enjoyed a divine revelation or not. You know, even those who have not received any kind of external revelation of the divine will are a law unto themselves. I mean, Paul makes that clear. So God has seen fit in his infinite wisdom to connect the promise of life to obedience to his law. And so everywhere you have Paul writing about this, even to the lawyer who admitted that the law required love to God and man, Jesus said, yeah, you're right. If you right. do that, you will live. So what floors me in understanding justification is the obedience that the law demands is called righteousness. And those who render that obedience are called righteous. So to ascribe righteousness to anyone or to pronounce him or her righteous, that is the scriptural meaning of the word to justify. And the word never means to make good in like this moral sense, but it's always to pronounce just or righteous. So when God justifies right. a man, he declares him righteous. I mean, I think that is really the kind of underpinning that's embodied in all of what the divine's right and where we kind of have to start. Yeah. And, and this was, you know, as we've said, this was one of the central recoveries of the Reformation, um, if if not the central recovery of the Reformation. This was definitely the central theological recovery of the Reformation. And in many ways, it was this recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone that drove Luther to the doctrine of sola scriptura. Right. So sola scriptura was, was um, in a sense, was a derivative rediscovery of justification. Luther um, rediscovered or retrieved the doctrine of justification, although it was never fully lost, but he retrieved the doctrine of justification, sola fide. And because he was going in opposition to the established church of his day, primarily, he was forced to say, well, scripture can is the only, uh, only authority that I can go to. So, um, it's important for us to understand some of these terms. And, and so I don't want to get too bogged down in like the linguistics of it. But the, the main argument during the Reformation was whether or not we, um, whether or not justification in the Bible refers to a process of being made righteous or whether it refers to a declaration and an accounting or a reckoning of righteousness. 
And the main reason that this was contentious linguistically, um, you know, to give to give the medieval Roman Catholics a little bit of slack, they were they weren't actually even dealing with the Bible at that point. They were dealing with a bad translation of the Bible, um, and, and not necessarily bad in terms of you know when you're translating from one language to another, you have sort of a toolkit to use. And unfortunately, the toolkit of Latin just wasn't that great for translating Greek in this particular way. And so when you translate um, the word dikaiosune or dikaio, um, which is the, the Greek, into Latin, you end up with the Latin word justificare, which is very easy to see where the word justification comes from. Well, the problem is that that is a fusion of two words of justitia, which is justice, and facare, which is to make. So um, like a factory, the, that FAC root in the word factory has to do with making or producing something. And so in Latin, the term justification is to make just or to make righteous. And so all through the, the, you know, the late patristic era in the West and the Middle Ages, um, justification was understood as a process by which someone becomes right and acceptable before God. Now, it wouldn't be correct to say that that, that process of being made just was driven by our own merit exclusively. It was driven all throughout by grace, that God graciously makes people just it was just a disagreement about the process. Well, when um, when Erasmus publishes, primarily when Erasmus publishes his Greek New Testament, it starts to be seen that there are several really significant points throughout the New Testament that the Latin Vulgate and the, the language of Latin had kind of let down the meaning of the text. And so Luther recognized that the root word in Greek for righteousness or to be made righteous or for justification is dikaio. And he recognized that that's a legal term that has to do with declaring someone righteous, right? We've right. used the um, we've used the analogy of the judge putting down his gavel and saying justified, not guilty, um, and and that was what the Greek was expressing. So Luther rediscovered this, and all of a sudden, you know, he says it, it was like the gates of paradise sprung open to him, because all of a sudden, rather than this perpetual treadmill of obedience that he was on, he realized that all he needed was the grace of God to change his status, to make to take him from a place where he was an enemy of God, and by God's own gracious decision, he was now made a friend of God. And now God behind the scenes does all sorts of things to make that such that he is both just in doing that and also the one who is justifying, right? That's, that's from Romans. Right. But as far as it's concerned on our end, there is no requirement. There's no... There's nothing that we supply to the pro, to the to the the fact of justification to to affect it. We don't bring it to be in any sense of the word. Um, even our faith does not bring about our justification. It's merely the channel through which justification is applied to us. Right. The reason why that is is what Luther got so correctly, because I, I, this is what obviously drove Luther to say something like, "How can I love God? I hate Him." And right. he was really, because he really was one of the few that understood the exacting demands of the law, that it was for real, that there was no liberty or charity in the law. So I think that that's, again, a place where it can just it can be such like a forensic concept. Like, it's just about the fact that I'm now absolved from all the bad things I've done. And it's way more than that, because the reason why that language is used in the Bible in that particular way is because if the law were satisfied by an imperfect obedience or by some kind of routine external duty or by service that we're able or competent to render, then justification would be by works. But right. since it demands perfect obedience, justification by works is for sinners just 
absolutely impossible. And that's what Luther actually understood to the point that it made him physically ill and very upset with God himself. So the law is not satisfied by any single grace or imperfect obedience. I mean, there's no charity in the law. It knows and can know no other ground of justification than complete compliance with its demands. And that's something that's hard for us this side of the cross, I think, to really allow ourselves to wade into in a deep way, such that it impacts us by leading us to doxology and gratitude for what God does. Because the law cannot lower its demands. There is no compromise. It cannot demand demand less than what is right. And perfect obedience is the only thing that's right. So Every man who expects justification by works must see to it not that he is better than other men, which is our tendency, both in the secular world and the Christian world, to just do everything relative to comparison, or that he does very exact or meticulous things, or that you know we fast twice a week or give our tithes. It demands that we are sinless. And again, right. Luther really understood that. He felt the treadmill was that he was on was to run this endless race of trying to be sinless. So you can imagine, I think, seeing it that way, how it was actually paradise to him. Like he wasn't being hyperbolic, I believe. He really felt the relief of justification being this great work of God that not just cleansed the palate, not just like made him morally acceptable, but actually took him off the treadmill and gave him rest in God. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and I think that's where the sort of the second half of the Westminster's definition comes in. Um, you know, it's, it starts off, it, he pardons our sins, he accepts us and accounts us righteous. But the second part of that is not only is our sin taken away and as our ledger wiped to zero, but the perfect obedience of Christ is imputed to us. So it's, right it's, not, just, uh, it's not just as if I never sinned. It's just as if I had always obeyed. So yes. it's it's even more than just the absence of punishment, but justification is also the grounds for our reward. And, and that's something I think that a lot of times we have to be really careful. And, and there's a longstanding tradition in the Christian faith um, that understands the concept of rewards according to works in the in the new heaven and the new earth, right? Whether we conceptualize it as crowns or like a bigger house or a closer position to to the throne of God, however we want to think about it, there's a proper place for us to understand that our obedience, our our obedience after we are justified, after we are made righteous, our obedience genuinely garners pleasure and reward from God. That's that's true, but justification is the grounding for all of the positive favor of God. The right. only reason that God can reward our, our fallen and frail and incomplete works, the only reason he can see those as good is because they are grounded in the fact that Christ was already good on our behalf. So it's not that the only reward we get is for Christ's good works, but the only rewards that we receive are on the basis of Christ's good works. We don't add anything to it, but Christ Christ does the work for us. And then because of that, because we are in Christ, because we are instead of um, instead of enemies sort of trying to trick God into letting us into his kingdom, we are now righteous sons who are entitled to the full rewards of heaven. And because we are entitled to the full rewards of heaven in Christ, God can use and look at our individual works and find favor and, and pleasure in them. So sanctification is only works 
in the presence of justification. It doesn't, justification doesn't cause sanctification. That's more of a Lutheran kind of a thinking to think of sanctification as like a second step of the justification process. But sanctification, properly speaking, is not possible unless justification is already in place. Yeah, I think the human condition really craves that kind of justification. Even those who are atheists or anti-theists really imagine that their good deeds will be compared with their evil deeds and that they'll be rewarded or punished as one outweighs the other, or that the sins of one part of life may be atoned for by the good works of another, or that they can escape by mere confession and repentance. And what has absolutely been radical for me in understanding this concept is we understand intuitively that that is not how rules or law are understood or administered. You know, for instance, somebody who steals or murders, even if it's just once, I mean, murdering once is bad, but even if it's just once, even if that person confesses, confesses and repents and he does any number of acts of charity to try to make up for that, he is not less than a thief or a murderer. So the law the reason why we need this justification so badly is because the law that God has, has given us has basically stained us with an identity that is exacting and uncompromising. The law, right. in other words, cannot take notice of repentance or reformation. Only God can do that. And under the government of God, strict law is nothing but perfect excellence. It is the steady exercise of complete moral rectitude. And I think at the end of the day, no matter who you are, that is exactly what we want. We want it with others. We want it with ourselves. We want it with whatever higher power that we're going to try to label exists in the universe. Even if we say there's a lack of one, we still want to be justified. And so I like what you said, because that one of the great things about Christianity is not just like, well, all the bad stuff you've done, I swept under the rug. Let's pretend it's not there anymore. Because the other side of that is, well, what good have you done then? I mean, what have you done to make yourself morally right and to serve your fellow man? And we would still have to work incredibly hard. That's just another type of treadmill. Like you're just getting off one treadmill and jumping onto one that's that's moving a lot faster. So I love that our standing before God is not just made right because of what's been taken away, but in in a very unabstract way, we've been given all of these wonderful benefits because of what Christ has done. It's all been transferred over. It's that great exchange again. And here we see it like really manifested in justification. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important for us to take a little bit of time and talk about why it is that justification is, um, or how it is that justification is gracious. Okay. Right? Because some sometimes people think of justification as though you know particularly in in sort of arminian circles it, it can come up that justification is kind of the least that god could do after he let us get us into this mess right but but in point of fact um justification is one of the greatest gifts and one of the most um the most costly gifts if we can sort of phrase it anthropomorphically one of the most costly gifts that god gives us Right. So question 71 says, how is justification an act of God's free grace? It says, although Christ by his obedience and death did make a proper, real and full satisfaction to God's justice in behalf of them that are justified, yet inasmuch as God accepted and the satisfaction from a surety, which he might have demanded of them, he did provide this surety, his own son imputing his righteousness to them and requiring nothing of them for their justification, but faith, which is also his gift. Their justification is to them of free grace. And this is getting at that, that same idea that, um, you know, one of the central differences among many, but one of the main differences between Arminians and, um, Calvinists 
is this idea that faith is somehow more than instrumental, right? So, so for the Arminian, for the most part, faith is something we, we bring to the table. We bring our faith to the table and God um, is gracious to receive that faith. He's gracious to give us something for that faith that that faith doesn't necessarily merit in and of itself. But ultimately he is rewarding us for that faith, which we supply. But for, for the reformed position, not only is the sort of forensic framework that God establishes, the, 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 the law system that God establishes, which allows for justification to function, which is covenant theology. Um, beyond that, he also supplies us with that which is required. So, you know, there are some people that want to say that, uh, like, justification has no requirements. God doesn't require anything of us. But, you know, the Westminster tradition uh, explicitly says faith is a requirement of justification. God does require faith from us in order to justify us. But where we turn the corner is that God provides that faith for us. So the justification from start to finish is a gracious act of God. First and foremost, because God did not have to formulate a plan or a legal structure in which to justify us, right? The covenant of works was broken and God could have left it at that. It would not have changed or defamed his character. It would have been perfectly consistent with his character had he decided um, not to save anybody. That would have been perfectly just and perfectly uh, consistent with his character. So the first gracious act of God was to establish the covenant of grace and to send a redeemer, to plan to send a redeemer, which of course happened, the plan happens in eternity past, but to enact that in time was an act of grace. But then on top of that, all covenants have conditions. And so God himself fulfills the conditions of the covenant of grace, making it an even further act of grace to justify us. Yeah. That's right on. I mean, I think what happens, particularly in the Armenian perspective, is that faith gets relegated to something that is small that we can manufacture, that just requires a little bit of effort, and, and God can take that and go the rest of the way with it. He can just pick up the ball and carry it, but then we got to bring the ball and show up at the field, so to speak. And that that's a big problem for me because, again, looking back through the full scope of the counsel of God in the scriptures, the Old Testament in particular, with, again, the law and the understanding of what God has laid down for requirements for life and holiness, I just don't see how we have any grand grounds where we can stand on our own effort. Because it, it is by faith only that Christ's righteousness becomes ours and that we have an actual interest in and are put in possession of it. So whatever foundation may be laid for in the decree of God's election and in Christ's satisfaction in our place, it is not but by faith that we are possessed of it or complete it before the Lord. So to me, just as Adam's sin cannot hurt us till we have our being in him naturally, which all of us do, in the same way, so Christ's righteousness cannot profit us until we be made in him by faith. So it, right. that's, I think, the bridge like you're talking about that makes this so necessary. And given that we just spent a lot of time talking about basically how backwards we are morally, how much our natural disposition is to rebel against God, I don't see how we can make that turn. It seems like a bridge too far to cross for us to do on ourselves. And yet that's what the scriptures say justification it requires is some kind of faith. And so that's got to come from God. We just see everywhere, like you said, God making a way. All what he's doing for his people is fulfilling his covenant, even being the progenitor, the one that promulgates the covenant itself, is in fact an act of grace, that God would design 
in his infinite love for us some way out, so to speak, that not only satisfies his requirements, but puts us in the good grace that we might lovingly have relationship and intimacy with him. How is this not like God doing everything and being awesome in the true sense of the word towards us? I, I just can't yeah. get over that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it is also important for us, and this may seem a little counterintuitive, but justification occurs in the service of God's greater plan for humanity. Right. So I was uh, every Sunday morning, there's there's a set of books that I read like 10 minutes each. And one of them is um, Gerhardus Voss's Sismak, uh, or Reformed Dogmatics. And he makes the point building out of Romans uh, 8, Romans 8, building on the golden chain, that the the whole process of this golden chain, right? Those whom he foreknew, he also called those he or he predestined, those he predestined, he also called those whom he called. He also justified those whom he justified. He also glorified. He makes the point that the, the end state, the end of that chain is dependent on the purpose of the foreknowledge and the purpose of the predestination. So he predestines us in order that we may be conformed to the image of Christ so that Christ may have many brothers. So justification is a benefit in and of itself, right? right. Legal right standing with God is a benefit in and of itself. Um, but, you know, we, we, we did this a little bit out of order, but adoption in Christ is sort of the end goal of justification, or it's one of the end goals of justification, right? Glorification um, as a concept encompasses a lot of different things. Um, but adoption in Christ, brotherhood with Christ, is sort of the purpose of justification or one of the purposes of justification. Um, and, and that's one of the kind of mistakes I think that a lot of reform people are making is there, um, you know, we talked a little bit about this in the, um, in the Ordo Salutis um, episode, I believe justification can sometimes become kind of like the central benefit of Christianity. But in reality, in the historic reform position reformed understanding, even though justification is the entry point and kind of the, um, the crux of the question union with Christ, um, adoption, glorification, unity with the father by the son and in the spirit, that is the end goal of justification, right? If, if, if there right. was a Westminster question that said, what is the chief end of justification? The answer would be so that man may glorify and enjoy God forever. So we have to remember that, that the, the justification is not the terminus of the chain of salvation. It's, it's a stage in the process, but it serves a purpose that goes beyond itself. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, that's what makes it beautiful and far more robust than I think we give it credit for is the fact that it's not just an end unto itself. Yeah. Why, why don't we um, Why don't we kind of wrap things up a little bit by going to the Heidelberg Catechism? Um, I know there are some people that think that we're just Westminster people, which is ironic since you're a Baptist. But um, <laughs> we'll go to the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's question um, question sixty. All right. It let's says, do it. How how are you righteous before God? So this this is getting at more along the lines of the actual. Um, the existential and sort of experiential element of justification, right? We've talked about kind of what justification is, but now, now the Heidelberg, which tends to be more um, sort of a warmer catechism, it tends to be more ap 
application style than the Westminster does. Um, How are you righteous before God? And the answer is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and never having kept any of them and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. And then it goes on and says, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. So it, it, this isn't saying anything different than, than what we've been saying for the last 45 minutes. It's not saying anything different than the Westminster. But it's, it's pointing out that um, justification on our behalf is so important because it, it reverses our estate. Right. right. The, the, the Heidelberg starts out by talking about the estate of sin, misery, and death. Right. We, we start out in this estate of misery. We start out in this estate where we just cannot um, we cannot get out of it. And it is the worst possible thing for us to be in. And then it talks about righteousness before God and it flips all that around. That whole problem gets flipped around by justification. We're made right before God. We're ushered into his presence. Christ's obedience is imputed to us. Our sin is imputed to him. And it says that, and you know, we kind of make fun of the just as if I never sinned, but it actually says it's just as if I had never sinned. And it is just as if I had always obeyed. And and I think that, you know, for, I think most of our listeners, this is just an impression I get, but I think most of our listeners are on the sort of Westminster side, which as I said, it tends to be more analytical, more, um, technical, but it, it does us all well. And it does me well. I can speak particularly of myself. It does me well to, to sort of bounce that off against what the Heidelberg has to say, because the Heidelberg is, um, it's in communication and in it's constructed in, in sort of conversation with a broader reformational tradition, right? It's closer in proximity and time to the Lutheran confessions. And it's influenced by them in a way that the Westminster's not. But it also has an eye towards the more practical application of divinity, where the, the Westminster really is more about a technical system, um, which has its place. The Heidelberg Catechism is much more uh, pastoral in that sense. And that goes back to my observation really at the top, that sometimes this becomes really technical for us. And so instead of there being this outpouring of our heart, this rising up of emotion to respond to this great truth, it can just become very kind of sterile or very kind of rote in the way that we understand it. Not again, to our detriment. We're, I think we're trying to understand it best. But what this question does really well, what all of the Heidelberg does exceptionally well, but in this case is answer the question, in what sense does faith fulfill the law? Which is what we're talking about. Justification is basically a fulfillment of the law through faith. So I really like Luther said this particular quote was really meaningful to me. He said, for out of Christ's merit, it brings the spirit and the spirit makes the heart glad and free as the law requires that it should be. Thus, good works come out of faith. So in this way, he's basically saying by faith, we establish the law rather than abolish it because innocence is confidence. You know, like if you're driving and obeying all of the the speed limit laws, all of the laws of operating a vehicle and you get pulled over, the first thing you're thinking of is, is, why am I getting pulled over? Like I'm confident I haven't done anything wrong. Right. And so he's basically saying that was what the law was always intended to do was to bring life but in sin, instead, it brings death. And so by way of justification through faith, 
all of that is changed. Like you're saying, we are liberalized. We are freed up to live in glorious confidence that we have the favor of our God because of what he's done and established. And that only comes, this righteousness only comes by way of justification. And it's totally alien, as we've been saying before. Like it's not generated internally by human effort, but it has to be given from the, ins- from the outside. So for me, I perceive this in terms of both imputation and kind of installation. Like this doesn't make us holy. Justification isn't about, I think that sometimes gets misunderstood. Like what God's saying is like, you are holy now. That's not what we're right. talking about here. Um, but it, it's almost better than that. It's being made in this right relationship. And I think we forget that Christ's righteousness, what it is, is twofold. I mean, there's his essential righteousness, which he had from eternity with God. And that's common to all three persons. It's natural. But that cannot be the righteousness of Christ whereby sinners are justified. So what we're talking about instead is the second part of his righteousness, which would be his mediatory righteousness. And that's particular to him as the father's servant, as the mediator between God and man. And that was his conformity to the law. And as this question says so well, it's as if you conform to the law entirely. Right. And what it does is that removes the stain of saying, once a lawbreaker, always a lawbreaker. It removes that, but it also says, once for someone who's obeyed, someone who you're now someone who's always obeyed and therefore right. gets all the, all the blessings. I mean, it's kind of like when you were talking about benefits, it just made me immediately think of like the temporal world of the benefits I get through work, especially like healthcare. The benefits that you get through work are based upon the fact that your employer has hired you. You can't hire yourself for your employer and then get all the benefits. So again, I think that's just a wonderful way of thinking about all of this that Christ has done through justification. Yeah. And and I think, you know, maybe to kind of to wrap this up and sort of bring it maybe a little bit full circle with the John Piper thing. Let's do it. the, The reformed position on this, more or less, is that um the 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 verdict that god s- declares over us the the forensic statement of our righteousness is the eschatological statement of christ's righteousness so it, it it's true that um god vindicated christ's work in the the resurrection and that vindication that justification of christ god looking on christ in the grave and essentially saying this this punishment that you're serving, this death that has come upon you is not just because you are righteous. And so I'm reversing that uh, that juridical reality. That That's essentially what happens in the resurrection, among, among other things. And that reality that is applied to Christ because of his righteousness is then applied to us because of Christ's righteousness. Right. Because we are now in union with him. What God declared of him in the resurrection is true of us. And in the same or in a similar way, in the end, Christ still will stand before the judgment throne of God. Christ still stands before the Father's throne. And the Father is still, in effect, proclaiming him just. He is still looking on the Son and saying, You are my beloved and righteous Son. You have fulfilled all the law. You have lived in perfect and perpetual obedience. And that eschatological judgment of Christ is also true of us. So in the, in the grave, Christ is declared righteous and brought out of the grave. In the end of time, Christ will be declared righteous. And that that is applied to us as well. Where it gets to be dicey, and this is where Piper's critics believe he's going and where I, th- I think they're interpreting him wrong, is he says that that now affects a new state of reality for us. That now that we have that eschatological verdict, 
that we've, he, we've died that death and been raised to this new life. That from that position of, of forensic righteousness, we now go forward and can live obedient lives. And so that, that's essentially what he's saying. Where it, where it goes wrong, and, and a lot of times people are drawing comparisons between what he's saying and what Roman Catholics are saying. And on, on a very um, uncritical or uncareful read, I think, um, on an uncareful read of what Piper is saying, it bears some uh, surface resemblance to what Roman Catholics say, right? They say that, that Christ does something and it brings us into this state of grace. And from that state of grace, we earn merit. And that merit allows us then to be, uh, enter into God's kingdom. Well, the difference is that this, this, um, this new state of reality from which we live righteous and holy lives, right? We are declared righteous and because of that new state of, of reality, we move forward in obedience under the law. And we fall, we fail, but, but in progressing fashion, we live in greater conformity to the law as we grow into greater conformity to Christ's image. But that increasing conformity does not merit us any sort of uh, justification before God. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't punch our ticket to get into heaven. It doesn't, um, it's not like, you know, last week when we were talking about the Piper thing, we talked about how justification, Christ's justification of us is the toll that we paid to get on the road. And some people are arguing that, well, well, Piper is basically saying that's true. But then when we get to heaven, there's another gate and we have to pay with our own works to get that gate to open up. That's not what Piper is saying, but that's what they're, they're saying he's saying. And that's the central feature we have to remember as reformed Christians is that the, the road that we get onto is a toll road. We, and, and Christ pays that toll for us. And then we walk on that toll road, but there's no gate when we get to heaven. When we reach the end of the road, there's no gate because the only gate there is, the only gate there is, is the toll to get on the road. Once we're on that road, there's, there's no destination besides the beatific vision. And there's nothing that we do that, that gets us to that, or that could prevent us from getting there. But nevertheless, we still walk on that road of holiness because we are on the road by Christ's justification. Right. So it's it's the grounding of our good works, as we said earlier. The only reason we can walk on this road is because Christ has enabled us to walk on this road. But but it's not meriting us salvation or meriting us justification that we walk on the road. And that's really important for us to keep in our minds. Right. You're absolutely right. That is the very language that Jesus himself uses, entering by the narrow gate. No, so exactly. it's not like you enter by the narrow gate and you exit by the additional narrow gate, which you're right. going to have to somehow you know, tra- travel through. It, he makes that very clear. I mean, I like that. And like, I think to, for us to like kind of push out and wrap it up by, by trying to say something about what it means then for us to go forward and to live you know, every day, like your Monday and your Wednesday, what that looks like, knowing that you've been justified is the sense of understanding in context that you've been made righteous and how that really should transform like our thoughts, not just what we think about, but how we think, and then also how we act. Because the center of Reformed theology, it doesn't lie in its theological system, but in its religious consciousness. I mean, I think those are the words actually from like B.B. Warfield, and I like that, this religious consciousness and we, part of that consciousness is really understanding what justification means to you and what it should mean to you. So one example for me would be, you know, to claim to believe that God is your sovereign king, that you owe all you are and are to, are to him 
in his distinguishing grace and love, that you've been justified, made righteous, that you are and ever will be a debtor to mercy, while behaving proudly in treating other sinners that way, or even worse, Christian brothers with supercilious disdain, is not to expose yourself as an inauthentic Calvinist, but to expose yourself as an inauthentic Christian. Right. And so to your point about how this is central to understanding all of Christianity, not just Reformed tradition, but all of Christianity, we really got to behave like we've been justified. And that's been a challenge in my own life is really to internalize this truth in such a way that it's not just like head knowledge so you can, we can spout off what it means or to give answers to questions, even good questions like the Heidelberg, but that we actually live in such a way that this permeates our behavior. Uh, that's way yeah. more complicated. Yeah. And I think for me, uh, uh, sort of an analogy, it's not really even an analogy, but sort of a framework that has been really helpful for me to understand this is this concept of the already and not yet. Right. Right. So we recognize that um, after death in heaven and then in the new heaven and the new earth, we will live holy, righteous lives. We will live in perfect, perpetual obedience to God's law. But prior to death, we still will live to more or less degree an obedient, righteous life. And so to me, there's almost this sort of artificial change that happens that people postulate when we die. And, and really what it is, is we're justified. And as justified individuals, we enter into this new life. And although the new life is only partial in this world, it's still the new life. Right. So you exactly. can think of it, you know, the, the reformed like to think about this and like to point out that, you know, we're not, um, we're not sick patients who have to open our mouths to receive the medicine, right? We're dead. We're corpses and Christ brings us to life. And that's what justification is, right? We're not, we're not drowned victims who have to grab onto the lifesaver. We're the corpse at the bottom of the ocean and Christ comes and gets us and breathes life into our, our, our lungs and we live. Well, it would be as ridiculous to say that we could be justified and then per persist in a life of unrepentant sin as it would be to say that we could be resuscitated but fail to breathe, right? That breathing is not what makes us alive. It's not what gave us new life. But nevertheless, if we have been given new life, we will breathe. We will have a heartbeat. And, and you know, in, in our life, that breath and that heartbeat is not perfect. Right. But it's still there and it's still real and it's still there only by God's grace and it's received only by faith, but it's still real. And I think that's, that's ultimately where this justification controversy falls is Piper seems to be saying to me, he seems to be saying to me that a corpse that's been brought to life by Christ will live. And to deny that seems just incoherent to me. So I think what you say is absolutely right, that we have to live like we're justified. And if we're not living like we're justified, then we have to question whether we are justified. Because the signs of life, it's funny, I've been on this Stephen Curtis Chapman kick, but he has the song, The Signs of Life. And it's all about right. the fact that a justified Christian looks a certain way. Exactly. And if you don't look like a justified Christian, Maybe you're just backsliding and, and you will come into a, a, a new growth of righteousness and holiness, but maybe you're also just not a justified Christian. Maybe right. you look like a goat because you're still a goat. I mean, that's a real thing. And, and I just, I, I really hope that we can make some real progress in this, um, 
controversy because it just seems like it's coming back around. It seems like it's frustrating. I've had a couple of the guys from over at Thorn Crown uh, reach out to me and they want to talk on the phone. And to be honest, they just don't have a lot of time for that. Um, so I'm hoping to maybe set up some time where we can do like a joined podcast episode where we can just have a conversation about this and talk about it as brothers. Um, but I really want to make some progress in this because it, it didn't ever really feel like there was progress made when Jones and Clark went at it last year. And it doesn't feel like there's progress being made now with people just sort of shooting arrows and, and maybe they're good arrows to shoot. Maybe they're not. I don't know, but it seems like we're not making progress. So I'm hopeful that maybe we can start a conversation that we can make some progress on it. Yeah. Because otherwise I think what it's doing is it's pulling attention away from what you just said, that justification, at least in our behavior is a continuance rather than a categorical change when we arrive in heaven. Right. And when we fail to see it that way and we get caught up in kind of this argumentation around what it means, while it can be helpful, it can be, of course, a lot more heat than light. And understanding that what it means to be justified and really free here. Again, this I, I so badly really want to celebrate with what Luther said about this just being opened up, like heaven itself being opened up to him and yeah. realizing this truth. I want to get there. I really want to get there because my sense is that what this breeds is just wonderful momentum. What would it be like for all of us as Christians to really know and sense the reality in our lives that we have been made free and justified before God right now, that that would encourage us to live in such a way right now that would really mark just a continuance of God's good work when we got to heaven rather than a complete change or total reformation then. Like, let the reformation happen now and let it start with me and let it begin with me understanding what justification really means. That's where I want to be at. Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better than that. So I'm not going to (laughs) try. That was like a pregnant pause. It, it just was. got really deep and serious. <laughs> well, I think that this has been great. I'm, I'm excited to sort of continue this series that we've started, although we haven't really done it in the right order. Um, maybe when it's done, I will uh, put together like a little post that has the like correct order to listen to this in. Because we did, we kind of did the uh, effectual calling one. Right, and true. We, sort of, we did monergism. We did synergism. We talked. I mean, we've talked about all of this stuff in one form or another. So we'll have to put together like a, a sequence that people should listen to it in. Yeah, well, but I'm just excited because, you know, we've done, I, I think we have, have started a conversation that need to happen, right? This is one of the 2018 top six issues that we identified in our New Year's episode. True. These issues around law and gospel and legalism and antinomianism, all of these things that seem to have cropped up last year, we we need to keep this in the front of our minds as as reformed theological thinkers. This is so important for us to land. And and it's one of as we said, it's one of the few things that legitimately, if you're wrong about, you're not a Christian anymore, right? You're, you're not a Christian if you think you save yourself, even if you only think you save yourself a little bit. Right. If, if you think that you do it a little bit yourself, you're not a Christian anymore. And the scary part about that is sometimes, sometimes people think that about sanctification and it bleeds over into justification. And that's really dangerous ground to be on. So I'm excited to talk about sanctification uh, when we continue this. It should be next week unless something comes up. Um, I'm excited to talk about it because I think it's really important that we land this. I think so too. I like how you said basically, Lord willing, if we talk about it, in case like there are other heresies we got to bust up next well, week. You know, it happens. It happens a lot. Controversy. There's stuff that comes up that, that we just have to talk about. Yeah, not it, not that like we're important. It's not like us no, talking about it I mean, really does anything. Of course but, not. Of course but not. But sometimes but we just have to. I, I believe you and I are contractually obligated to address controversy yeah. when it arises. 
Yes. Oh yeah, for sure. So if, uh, if you want to help us in our contractual obligations to address controversy when it arises, uh, there are a number of ways you can support the show. Uh, we love getting emails and voicemails. That's a huge support and encouragement to us. If you want to, um, contribute in a more monetary fashion, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash reformed brotherhood, uh, and you can set up a monthly donation. Any amount helps. Um, or you could, uh, set up a PayPal, uh, one-time donation if you want to reformed brotherhood at gmail.com. And we would be happy to, uh, take your gifts and use them, uh, as best as we can for the furtherance of the gospel through this show. So since it's the end of the cast, we're winding down. People know we're coming to the end. Let's give out the number because you should definitely call us and leave a voicemail of commentary or question, whatever you like. That number is 607-444-2767. Bros. Spells out bros at the end. Just dial it because it that's fun. And because you it probably, is. like me, have no idea what numbers correspond to B-R-O-S, but you should just try it because it's a good time. Indeed it is. Well, Jesse, I think that wraps it up for this week. I think it does, Tony. Until next time, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. What if I'm fine?